What a lovely introduction. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> My name is Angela, and I'm an alcoholic. And I do thank you for, for being here. For without you, I, I would have no one to share this morning with. And I really appreciate, especially the young people that dance up a storm on Saturday night and and still manage to be here Sunday morning. I think we sort of find out, we separate the men from the boys, find out who the true alcoholics are. <laughs> I, uh, I uh, particularly want to thank the committee on inviting us on your behalf and to let you know that they have treated us with every love and courtesy that they that they were able to extend with all the other problems and things going on to put on a rally of this nature. Um, for those that have never done this, I want you to know that it doesn't become any easier just because you've been around a few days. I think it's not because um, we're into I as much as when we first come, but that we realize more and more the responsibility of being asked to carry the message. And uh, I was told that we grow by being constantly humbled, and uh, I ask that I be humbled in my own home group and not at your expense. <laughs> so uh, anyway, here we go. Um, I came uh, into AA when I was 23 years old. Came in on September 27, 1953. And up until that time, it was the greatest thing that had ever happened to me in my life. I was born into a family of eight children. Highland Scottish background. They knew that the lowland Scotch were just that lower than them. They never did get around to mentioning other nationalities because everybody was lower than them. That's how it is when you don't speak English, just Gaelic. And I grew up in a home for the first seven years. It was filled with bagpipes, Seaforth Highlander cadet band practiced twice a week in our home marched through the entrance hall, living room and dining room, and back through the doors, round and round. A piano and a teacher to teach piano. Violins and a teacher to teach violins. And that was my life for the first six years. And then a thing called TV that maybe the young people aren't familiar with, but the older people will be. Tuberculosis attacked our family. Um, I remember being upstairs in the upstairs hall and the bathroom door being open and um, my older sister was standing spraying something in her throat. And I went, went in and said, what are you doing? And she said the doctor had given her something for her, for her throat. They didn't know what was wrong. And within two weeks she was dead. And uh, then they knew what was wrong. There was tests and x-rays and everything. And 
Three children were immediately shipped off to the hospital in Kamloops, Tronkeel, and I was put to bed for a year. And uh, a couple of years later, one of the children had died in the hospital, and the doctor suggested to my parents that there was nothing they could do for the other two. Uh, my mother said, isn't there anything? And they said, perhaps if you got them into a dry area, in a dry part of the country. And being from Scotland, uh, he, he said, uh, you know, the mountain area would help. And I think he meant, you know, the desert or somewhere hot. And uh, my mom and dad built another house in North Vancouver up Grouse Mountain. And... Uh, so it wasn't much better. And at that point, my mother moved into the house in North Vancouver and looked after the children there. They, they had them taken out of the hospital. And, and my dad stayed behind in the main house with my sister, who was four years older than, than I. And um, we basically started to raise ourselves. My father worked in the hotel business and, and was usually gone by the time we came home from school and didn't come home until late and, and uh, we were up and gone early in the morning. My sister was four years older than me and taught me how to make my lunch for school and I, you know, it's like anything else. If you are rich, you don't know that there's anybody poor. And if you are poor, you quite often don't know that you're, that you are poor. You know, if you have love and consideration, kindness from those around you. And so I did have that. I had a sister who loved me, a father who probably loved me, although I never ever saw that much of him. And the neighbors were wonderful. You know, they talk about Christianity today, and uh, sometimes that makes the hairs go up in the back of my head when I am asked if I am a Christian. And um, my reply is that I do not know if I am a Christian, but I, but I believe in love, and I've always believed in love. And certainly the, the neighbors extended that love to, to us as children. When the last one died, I have to go get some water, I'll hear you. When the last one died in North Vancouver, they sold the main house in Vancouver and we moved over to the North Shore. Every time there was a death, all dishes were broken and got rid of all bedding, everything else, you know, and the uh, house fumigated. And uh, so anyhow, we were apparently supposed to move into clean and pure house again. And so we moved to North Vancouver, and uh, after about a year, my sister got ill. I started praying um, about four or five months before she died. Really serious prayer. Please get me out of here. Please do something. I'm going to be next. Every one of the family died when they were 19. And um, anyhow, um, my sister eventually died. She would have been 19 in June. And... You know, it, you don't always realize that your prayers are being answered. It's just looking back that you realize they're being answered. My sister died. We had the funeral. I went to school a couple of days later, came home from the funeral, 
and there was a, a lady in the kitchen. My mother introduced me to her as her sister from Los Angeles and told me that I would be leaving for Los Angeles the next morning. But God removed me from the home. Many years later, I found out that my father was the TB carrier. He didn't know it. If he knew, he died without knowing it, thank God. The tremendous guilt he would have felt if he had realized that the reason that they were all dying was because of him. His thing was, I cannot afford to get an x-ray or anything. I have to work to support everybody. So off I went to to Los Angeles and, and went to school in Los Angeles for a time. And when I came back, my parents had sold the house in North Van and moved to Vancouver Island. And I did not know that he was the TB carrier, but I did know that I did not want to live with him. Possibly uh, my grieving and resentments and all that stuff were happening, and I really didn't know. Who knows? I don't know. I always felt that I didn't fit in anywhere, and I, I, uh, I, I really didn't know my mother, and I really didn't know my father, and I just didn't want to go home. And they had bought a house. Um, while I was in Los Angeles and moved to the island, as I say, and unbeknown to them, the house was being rented by people who, her, her the husband was in the armed forces. And there was still a law that you could not give notice to a tenant if the husband was in the armed forces. So the real estate people knew, but my mother and father bought this house and then discovered they couldn't even move into it. And, uh, so they were staying with friends, and when I came back, I said, that would be too much of an imposition for me to move in with them. You know, they already have you. I will rent a, a room two blocks away, which I did. And so I never, ever lived at home again. I had, I started to drink. Um, I went to a dance, actually, is what happened. I went to a dance, and... Never had been to a dance before. I was very, very green, very naive, um, didn't wear makeup, had never dated. I was 16 years old, and I, I found out where this dance was, and that it cost $2 to get in, and that you did not need an escort. And so on the Saturday, on the New Year's Eve, it was on Saturday night, I, I marched up to the stamp hall and presented my $2, and they stamped their hands, you know, with that invisible thing. And I went in and stood around feeling like the wallflower that I always felt I was, and uh, all of a sudden a young man came up and asked me if I wanted to dance, and I got out in the dance floor and danced with him, and he said, would you like a drink? And I said, yes. And I had never drank, and uh, we went down to the, his van with a, two or three other couples, and he said, drink down to here. He passed the little Mickey around, and, and I did, and I went into an immediate blackout. And uh, that's basically the, the rest of my drunk. I, uh, I managed to go a blackout quite often. Next morning, oh my God, I was so sick. I, uh, I came to, I was walking around English Bay, Bay Area, Vancouver, and I had vomited up all over myself. I had holes in my stockings, and 
a little old man walking his dog about five in the morning discovered me, and, and he took me and bought me a bowl of clam chowder. <laughs> I had never tasted clam chowder before in my life, and I vowed I would never, ever have it again. I went down really, really fast, and I got pregnant, and was didn't get married. That was not acceptable then. Nowadays, you know, I think in a way nowadays it's so much more honest. How long has it been since you've heard a horn blaring at two in the morning? No reaction? Don't you remember when you made love in the car and the horn blared? <laughs> My God, I do. I can remember lying in bed hearing horns go around all over the neighborhood. <laughs> the kids nowadays, they just rent apartments. So much more honest. I knew that this would definitely would not be acceptable in my family. And um, that was my first secret. Yeah. I decided that the way to handle it would be to get as far away from the Vancouver, especially the island that my mother and father were, but Vancouver is where the Scottish people are, relatives now. I got a job selling magazines. I had no idea that that's what the job was going to be. It was advertised as uh, something about liking to travel. And, uh, since I had no money and it was necessary that I travel, I went and, and uh, had an interview. And I've always been able to sell myself. Um, I probably wouldn't be able to do it anymore, but when I was younger, I didn't need an education like my friend down there. I would have been wonderful if I'd had one, but I didn't. And uh, but I I ended up with fabulous fabulous jobs. I managed hotels, sales directors, everything. And uh, I got a little nervous when they asked me to interview other sales directors at other hotels. Where and I saw the letters and they'd have degrees and everything. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know. But anyhow, I I answered this this ad, had the interview, and it turned out that it was to sell magazines across Canada. So they asked, someone asked me if I'd ever been to Winnipeg before, and I said yes, 49 years ago. I was here for one night. And uh, Lawrence Malkier was playing at the Winnipeg something or other hall. He was marvelous. He was an opera, light opera singer from Denmark. And so I sold magazines across Canada to get back east to Ontario, where I could have this child in, and uh, I thoroughly expected that I would put her up for adoption. I didn't think that I'd be able to look after her, but when I got to Ontario, I, I didn't realize that, um, that London, Ontario and Exeter, Ontario were as close to Toronto as they were and I had a girlfriend in Exeter and I had written her a letter telling her I was in the Toronto area and uh, her husband was in Toronto on business and he came to see me 
and there I was in all nine months' glory almost, denying up to the end that I was pregnant. <laughs> Every once in a while, the, the magazine people would would have a little meeting, and they'd ask me if I wanted to tell them something, and I <laughs> I can keep a secret. <laughs> My girlfriend's husband came around and he took me out for, he asked me if I had anything to say. He took me out for a couple of drinks and then, of course, I I cried and told him. And he took me home to Exeter to be with him and his wife. And, and that's where my daughter was born. Then I got a job there at the Air Force Base and looked after. I, I was going to give my daughter up, but you know, when you when you have them, and I, they're just so wonderful and everything, and I didn't think I could look after her, but the uh, she was born in a very small little hospital in Exeter, like the hospital with three beds. And uh, the little old lady that ran it uh, heard me crying in the night. And the next morning when the people were to come to a doctor, the parents that had been picked for her, uh, Mrs. Hunter came to me and said, you don't have to give her up. I will help you. And so she did. And, and I might have been able to make it if I hadn't taken a drink. But you know, us alcoholics, we just keep going back to that alcohol, not knowing that what a problem it is for us. Um, I worked there almost a year. I worked at the Air Force Base. And my uh, my father died, and I had a letter from my brother saying that since I was the youngest of the family and was not married and didn't have any liabilities, that it was my responsibility to come home and live with my mother. So I bought a bottle of rum and sat down and wrote a letter and said, you know, except me, except my child that I have. So, uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine what went on at this end of the country when they heard that news. But we uh, we set forth on a train and, and came back out to Vancouver. And I, I really, as every one of us have done a million times, thought I'll never drink again. This time I won't drink. I'll start all over again. And I wasn't home very long before uh, my mother, I don't want to put the blame on anybody, but, but everything I wanted to do for, for my daughter, my mother say, I'll do that, I'll do that. Let me iron her clothes, let me bath her. And it just seemed that there wasn't an awful lot left for me to do. And besides, I had met somebody downtown that told me where the beer parlors were and, and so I started to spend more and more time downtown drinking and less and less time home with my child. And eventually I was not coming home. You know, at four or five in the morning I would roll in and, and that would be it. One, uh, one day when I got up, my mother told me that she'd heard the, a radio program on that morning out of Vancouver. It was run by Reverend Smith and he had uh, some members on of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, that Alcoholics Anonymous was apparently a, <clears throat> a program that had just come to Vancouver a few years before and it was doing wonderful things for people like you. And she pointed to me. 
she she never said that I was an alcoholic, and I had never heard the word alcoholic before. All I knew that whatever I was doing, drinking and crowding and stuff, was not pleasing her. You know, she would she would just be scowling every day, but she never said I was an alcoholic. And uh, I had this impending doom going on in the pit of my stomach all the time. And someone told me that. I, I, I think I mentioned early on that uh, I, I didn't feel good or something, and they I guess they thought I had a headache or hung over, and, and that wasn't it at all. I, like John last night, I didn't get sick, but I had this impending doom, full of remorse, right from the very beginning. I lived with this horrible feeling, and they said, if you have a drink, that removes them. And so I became a daily drinker really, really early. And, and it does remove it, but uh, it takes away any other ideas you have of, have of living. So anyhow, my mother mentioned this to me about these people that had stopped drinking. And, uh, and I wanted to. I wanted to have what you have. And so I decided to buy a pair of stockings and get myself all cleaned up and go to Vancouver because this was in Nanaimo, and find out um, how, how this worked. So I went and got the stockings and, and uh, whatever else, and then I did the thing that alcoholics always do when they're going to make a decision to do something. I went in and had a couple of beers to figure out how to get on the boat. <laughs> and uh, I now know that you just buy a ticket and you go <laughs> But I went in and had two or three beers to figure out how I was going to get from Nanaimo to Vancouver. And I did get to Vancouver, but forgotten all about this Alcoholics Anonymous thing, which is just another drunk. And uh, I had the uh, hotel receipt in my pocket when I got back to Nanaimo, but, so I knew I had stayed at a hotel. Got back to Nanaimo and knew my mother would be really, really angry with me, so um, I didn't go home. I went to Chinatown and drank some more. And then I took a gal, a girlfriend home with me, you know, for moral support. By this time, it's about 4.30 in the morning. And my key wouldn't fit in the lock. And so I looked in the mailbox, and there was some mail, and there was also a letter addressed to me. And it suggested that I try this AA one more time. She was making this suggestion. And that she had taken my daughter and had left for California. Um, I remember turning to my girlfriend and saying, what did I ever do to deserve AA? I thought it said AF, the Air Force. And uh, she had always been great, you know. And anyhow, I there was a check in the mail to my mother, and I signed her name and cashed it. There was in her letter she said where I could pick up my clothes, and I had a friend of hers, and I picked up my clothes and headed for Vancouver. Checked into a hotel, used the money, which was not a lot, a few hundred dollars. Used the money to drink. At the end of the week, the hotel manager wanted to be paid. I explained to him that I had, didn't have any left, and he explained to me that he would look after my clothing for me until I paid the bill. And so there 
I was introduced to the street. And I lived on the street for I don't know how long, maybe a year, year and a half. Um, it wasn't popular, not popular now, and it wasn't popular then to live on the street. Um, I didn't panhandle on the street. What I did was go into the bar first thing in the morning, desperately needing that drink, banking on the fact that the bartender would buy me the first one, and that if I was really good and told dirty jokes and sang a lot, that somebody would come in to buy the second one. And and that's basically how I lived. I entertained in the bars all day uh, from one table to another and and uh, just became more and more and more bloated from beer. And because I was not working, because I was in the, unable to apply for a job, um, I didn't have any money and I didn't have any clothes. I shampooed my hair in bus depots and washed as best as I could in bus depots. But I had a, a mauve sweater and a black skirt that, that were my clothes. And uh, I didn't wash them because I was nowhere to wash them and you don't stand even in the bus depot in the nude. And so I would do a sponge job down the sweater and that. But as I say, I, I became more and more bloated and um, the women in the audience understand, the men have to be explained. Uh, Brazier's stretch so far, and that, then they, they give up. And, uh, somebody gave me a, a pin from a Highland kilt. And I had this enormous pin that held my brazier together. And one of the things that I thought helped people buy me booze was to look as sexy as possible, and you can imagine how sexy I looked, but I would straighten up, you know, and try and shove my chest forward, and this pin would burst and stab me in the back, and you try and continue to smile while you're being stabbed. When I came in into AA, I had actually had scabs, little scabs, all over my back. And um, and I wanted what you had right away. And I thought that I'd stay forever. I'd like to mention that because so many people are under the illusion that they will not drink if they don't want to. And that is just an illusion. You will drink again if you are alcoholic like I'm alcoholic unless you apply yourself to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous on a continuous basis. It is just for today we have. That's all we have. Just this moment. We don't even know what's going to happen a minute from now. And so I thought that I would be here forever because I really loved and really wanted what you have. But it requires honesty, trust, discipline, whole whack of things. It does not require cuteness or any planning on your part. I, I, I thought I had done the first, second, and third steps, but today, how I live 
so much different than how I lived then. I'd always, always wanted God in my life. Time I was five years old, I was trucking down Kingsway and down Cedar Cottage to go to church. And the rest of the family were at home. And there goes Ange again, trucking down every Sunday morning. I went, I was always drawn to church. And so uh, when you asked me to believe in God, I did, I thought. But the thing was that I didn't live live it. You know those slogans uh, in the uh, AA meeting rooms? I was telling a young fellow last night, if you arrange them just in the right order, it says the last word at the bottom, right across, says, think first of God, live it. Think first of God, live it. And I didn't think first of God. I thought I took the third step, but I thought that you had to be good for God. And uh, and we are good. We're as good as, as we can be right at this moment. And I wanted what you had, but that included your cars, your clothes. I mean, let's not forget I didn't have any. And... Uh, Houses and husbands and furniture and all that sort of stuff. They said to me on the third day, get a job. And uh, it wasn't that I didn't want to work. I, I didn't mind working, but I thought, who will hire me? But, you know, they had said, uh, you, you're not allowed, don't have any relationships for the first two or three years. Do not date. Do not get involved. Do not go into bars. Do not, do not, do not. And most of the do-nots I was willing to do. And uh, so they said, get a job. I said, where? Who will hire me? I'm still in this black skirt and purple sweater. Still the brassiere and the pin. I don't want to tell anybody I got a pin in my brassiere. And uh, so they flashed open the newspaper and said, there, right there. There's a job. Get that. And I, you know, I I was so afraid that they wouldn't let me back into the meetings all the time that I, I was willing to do whatever they told me. You know, I I thought if they see me going into a bar, they won't let me in. And uh, so anyhow, they said, go get a job at the Vancouver Sun. So I went down to the Vancouver Sun, and there was 87 people applied for the same job. And um, we, I filled out the application, three days sober right off the street, just shaking, and toothache aching. I'd had a toothache for years, but I was killed it with booze, and now it was just rotting there. And uh, so I filled out the application. They explained what I'd have to come back the next day, and there was going to be an exam for everybody that applied. So I went back the next day. Probably got zero out of zero. I mean, I was in such shape that how could I do, if I could do math, how could I do math, you know? And Or if I could spell, how could I spell? And I went to the meeting that night and they said, did you get that, did you apply for that job? And I said, yes. And uh, they said, so, they said, so. And I said, so I went down and uh, did an exam today and they said, and what did they say? And I said, well, uh, nothing. They just thanked me. And they said, well, you phone down. And you say to them that you you can appreciate the fact that they wouldn't want you wasting their time, and so they must appreciate the fact that you can't afford for them to be wasting yours. And uh, the thing was, 
that whatever they told me to do, I did it verbatim. And so I made the phone call. I, I was staying at the YWCA. I forgot to mention that when I came into AA that very first morning, I had 10 cents and a return ticket to the island. And I used the return ticket to go over to the island to gamble on the chance that my mother might be there with my daughter. And she was. The smoke was coming out of the chimney. And uh, I went around the back door because I knew it would not be welcome. And her face fell when she saw me and she said, what are you doing here? And I said, um, I have joined AA. You know, like, it was years before I realized what a miracle that, those words were. I went into the AA office, was told what Alcoholics Anonymous was by a non-member who just worked there, and explained to me that there was a meeting that night at 9 o'clock, explained to me how members do it from the hour to hour, and she said, if you manage to stay sober, you can make the meeting. She said, do you think you'll be sober? I said, I don't know. I never have been. She said, well, if you can make it till 9 o'clock, there's a meeting. And she gave me the address on Granville Street. So in the meantime, I sort of knew that I would not be able to make it living on the street. And so I had gone to the island, saw my mother. What are you doing here? I've joined AA. And she said, why should I believe you? And I said, there's not a reason in this world why you should, but I know that I have, and I need money. And she said, I will give you $50 on condition that you don't see your daughter for a year. So I took the $50, and then I asked if I could see my daughter. <laughs> and she said, no, the conditions were you not see your daughter for a year. So I left and walked back down to the ferry and sat there for two or three hours, and that was my first test. I had a $50 bill in my pocket, and I could see all the bars where I was well-known, where I had drank, and knew that there would be friends, and but knew that if I did that, I'd never make it to AA, and I had certainly lost my daughter. So anyway, back to the Vancouver Sun. I phoned them and tell them, give them the little speech that was given to me, and the fellow that answered was the uh, assistant manager of uh, personnel. He said, uh, what is your name? I said, McLeod. He said, can you hang on a minute? And I said, yes. So he, he must have gone to his boss and said, what a lulu we've got on the phone. And um, they set up a little practical joke for themselves. I guess it must have been slow at the paper that morning. And uh, came back on the phone and said, could you come down for an interview this afternoon? And I said, absolutely. So he said, told me the gentleman's name to go to the office and everything. And you know, uh, they, the thing about li being alcoholic and being amongst the missing is we become sort of cons and we can read the situation well. And uh, so I went down after this gentleman's office and was uh, the secretary opened his office door and I saw the carpet about three inches thick. And I thought, the, the thing to do here is not allow him to speak. If he gets a chance on asking me about my education, I'm history. So uh, I walked in and sat down and he asked me uh, about myself. And I told him, 
that I was uh, an alcoholic and had just joined something called Alcoholics Anonymous, and they told me that I had to get a job, and blah, blah, blah. And he got so excited, he picked up his pen and wrote terrific across the application. <laughs> and he said, don't worry about a thing, sweetheart, you're hired. But he said, actually, your boss is a Mr. Fletcher. Can you come back for another interview tomorrow morning? So the man that I was talking to was like almost, he wasn't the owner, but he'd been there 46 years, and he was one of the top executives. And um, so I went back the next morning and, and went to see this, this man, and when his secretary told him who I was, and I walked across to his desk, the veins actually stood out in his neck. I'd never seen that happen before. I'd heard of it. And his face went red, and and I was unaware of really what had happened the next morning, the morning before in the office. And, and anyhow, um, he said that there's nothing I can do about it. Your Mitchell has hired you. But I want to tell you, young lady, your spelling's atrocious. And I said, well, you can't have everything. <laughs> I worked there um, three years. And it was wonderful. They were wonderful to me. They allowed me to grow and change at my own pace. They, they showed me the job I was supposed to do, which took about 20 minutes, half an hour max. And I was so nutso that I figured, well, that's the end of my day. And uh, I would entertain throughout the building. I'd go up and sing an editorial and put on little floor shows and photography. And, and uh, so they got, they used me as a model. They'd take me out and take pictures and I'd be shown before and after in the sun and all this sort of crazy stuff. Unbeknown to me, there was two other AA members cringing. They were so scared that I was going to blow their anonymity. And uh, I did meet them, but I, of course, never, ever blew their anonymity. They explained to me that if I really believed in God and turned my, my uh, will over to God, that everything would be supplied to me. I couldn't believe that. I just couldn't believe that. I thought, well, that's okay for you. If you've got a car and you've got a job, you've got a husband, you've got clothes. By the way, the Vancouver Sun supplied a uniform. Wasn't I lucky? <laughs> you have all these things. Of course you believe in God. Why wouldn't you believe in God? But he's not going to supply them. You have to do some things on your own. And so I was introduced to a very, what I thought was a wealthy man at the time. And um, he had a ranch. He had some Arabian horses, and he had some Hereford cattle. I had got my daughter back. I had done, after the first year, I was able to get her back. And so uh, this was three years sobriety, and uh, but I hadn't done anything else. Hadn't done any of the steps. They suggested that I do the fourth step. I was so dishonest that I, I went along with it and said yes. And uh, after a while, they said, how's that coming? I said, oh, I'm finished. They suggest that I do the fifth step. So I made an appointment. Just to show you how dumb I am, I made an appointment with the minister. And uh, the same minister that was on that talk show talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I spent about a minute in his study, and he said, you better go back downtown and, and work on your fourth step. 
And uh, I went down to the club. I was the youngest member in Western Canada at that time, we thought. I don't know. Anyhow, everybody was waiting at the club that night because they knew I was going to do my fifth step. And they said, how did you make out, honey? And I said, oh, it was wonderful. They said, see, that's how it works. (laughs) So there I began my lives in AA. And uh, so anyhow, I I knew that I was going to have to do something. And this man asked me to marry him. And I was, I, I, I sometimes say I was 23 when I was when I came in AA going on 12 and uh, he asked me to marry him and I asked my daughter she was five and a half I said uh, she wants to marry us what will I do and she said well I always liked horses I said okay (laughs) Ah, we got married and we moved up to that ranch and I thought I died. Oh my God! I'm a city girl, and I've never been never been on a farm, let alone a ranch. And uh, I miss people I didn't like, even. You know, first two or th- first two or three weeks it was like a dude ranch, and then after you realize, my God, when you say I do, you do, and, and you're there. And then I started praying again seriously to God, and I, you know, please get me out of here. Do something. You know, I prayed for three years, and at the end of, and I never missed. And at the end of three years, they built an enormous big dam and had to flood our property, and we had to sell and move to Vancouver. I can't tell you when I stopped going to AA. It was a gradual thing. I. I Sometimes I, I, I talk about falling asleep. I think that's what we do. We forget the pin that's holding the brazier together. We had a big white Cadillac. And we had some racehorses in Vancouver. And we had our O'Keefe name on the box. And I was not happy. And it was not what I wanted. But I was not willing to be honest. And I um, blamed a lot of things that never, ever looked at me. My husband was introduced to me as a member of AA. And when he was introduced me to as a member, I knew he was not a member. I didn't know whether he'd ever been or not, but I knew he wasn't a member. Because AA members, you can see their eyes shining. And he was as sick as I was. He just didn't drink. And when he was 17 years sober, he had a massive heart attack. And he was in the hospital for three months, nurse, private nurses around the clock. And when he finally got out, he was hooked on the pills and the morphine and everything else. And he started to drink again, and he shot himself. He shot himself one day when I was my daughter. And um, I had always thought, if I can just be free of this one more mistake I've made, of this marriage. So there I was. I was free. But I still didn't come back to AA. I still didn't get honest. And eight months later, when I least expected it, I drank. 
I never thought that would happen to me. Never. I was positive. If you don't, if you don't want to drink, you won't drink. And that has absolutely nothing to do with it. If you don't work the program on a continuing basis, you will drink again. And the sad thing is, you don't know when it's going to happen. And you don't know whether you're going to be lucky enough to get back. I was at a banquet at the Bayshore Inn that I did not want to go to. It was a formal banquet. I was in a long evening gown, first, a whole ball of wax. My in-laws, I was with my in-laws and my brother-in-law after the banquet and speeches and all that sort of stuff. The band set up and he asked me to dance and I said, no, I think I'll just sit here, Art. And he said, okay, well, I'm going to talk to some people. And everybody at the table got up to dance or whatever and there was drinks on the table. And I went from saying, no thanks, Art, I think I'll just sit here, sit here to feeling so sorry for Angie. I thought, God, I was only 23 years old when I came in. I've had 12 years of sobriety, and I've never had any fun. I just went to hell with it. And I reached out, and I polished. Everybody's drink off the table. <laughs> My brother-in-law got 10 feet from the table, came back, and I must change drastically. He took a look at me and said, My God, Angela, what have you done? I said, It's okay, Art. I can handle it. And I picked up some young dude, and off I went. And I drank for eight years. And um, it was not fun. I tried everything in the book to make it work. Uh, tried going to bed at 6 o'clock at night. Tried all kinds of things. But I was a daily drinker when I got here, and I was a daily drinker the second time. I drink on the way to the bathroom in the middle of the night, and I drink coming back. I drink first thing in the morning in order to get to work. So I drink, I drink, I drink. I knew how it worked. You just don't drink just an hour at a time. It doesn't work. Sometimes I make it for four or five hours, congratulate myself that I've done it, and be on the second drink congratulating myself when I'd realize, my God, you've blown it again. And the next day I'd try and make it again. And that's how it went. My children decided to pray for me. One of them in Campbell River, the others in Vancouver where I were, where I was living. I didn't know they were praying for me. It took six weeks for their prayer to be answered. My son, I think, thought it was taking a little too long, so he tapered me off the last two or three days, and he started asking me, won't you try AA one more time just for me? And by the end of the third day, I could no longer look him in the eye and say, no, I won't try. No, it won't work. By the end of three days, I said, yeah, I'll try. So I came back for Kevin, not because I wanted AA. And I think it doesn't matter why you come as long as you come. And I came back, and um, 
the first night that I came, meeting that I came back to uh, was a, a Saturday night meeting in Vancouver that started at 8 o'clock. When I'd been in AA before, all meetings started at 9 and ended at 10. This was early, 8 o'clock. It was over at 9. And they had insisted on sending somebody to pick me up and take me to the meeting. And he, after the meeting, asked me if I wanted to go home. I said, no. I, you know, it's a funny thing. One minute you're, you're into the alcohol, next minute, like, you know that you have to stay with AA. And I didn't want to be alone in the house by myself. I knew the one person in the world I couldn't trust was me. I said, no, gosh, no, I don't want to go home. And he said, well, I'm going to the Alana Club if you want to come with me. So there's two Alana Clubs in Vancouver. He took me to the card playing club, Alana Club. And it was really good for me to see. There was a, a partition of plant, plants, and I could see members on the other side playing that had been in AA when I came the first time. And they never even got up for the sick, sick alcoholic on the other side that was passing out and stuff. And I didn't judge them. I just thought, see that and know that. Whenever you see a suffering alcoholic, whether they're sober or drinking, be with them. So it was my message. And uh, I stayed there on this couch. The other fellow had gone to watch TV. And the lady that was looking after the club that night, she was Al-Anon. And by the way, the Al-Anon ladies were the first one to invite me into their homes when I came in at 23. So thanks. <laughs> this, uh, this lady asked me, uh, I, I said to her, is there another meeting that I go, could go to tonight? And she said, there's one at midnight. Why? And I said, I don't think I'm going to make it. She said, you're not going to drink again, are you? And I said, no, but I, I just don't think I'm going to make it. So she told me where the meeting was, and it was sort of like a deja vu. I sort of planned that when it got close to midnight, I would find out where this man had gone that picked me up. I did. She said he's in the TV room. I walked towards the TV room. I knew that I was going to put my hand on his shoulder and say, I understand there's another meeting tonight. Would you like to go? And I knew that he was going to look up at me and say, I'm watching TV. And that's what he did. And that was another lesson that was needed for me. And I walked down the stairs, and I, the words of willing to go to any length were going through my my head, and that was for me. And I got a bus, and I went along to the address that they'd given me, and I got in the meeting. I don't know how long I was in the meeting, and I, I knew that I was going to disrupt it, that I was sick. And so I either said out loud or thought to myself, whatever, you'll have to excuse me. The next thing I knew I was... I heard somebody yelling for an ambulance, and I wondered who they were calling it for. And I opened my eyes, and it was for me. And when I opened my eyes, there was I was lying on the sidewalk, and uh, there was somebody taking my pulse. And she said, she's almost gone anyway, so it doesn't matter. And I looked at the man that was standing at my feet. I was to find out later, he was a, a lawyer, and... I knew he was a member of AA. I looked in his eyes, and I could see all the suffering pain for another alcoholic on his face. And I realized 
that I had done besides not working the program, I had done absolutely nothing to give back what I had received. And I closed my eyes and I asked God to just allow me to live long enough to give back a little. And the thing is that the more you give, the more you receive. So it's an impossible debt to repay. But it should not be impossible to try and repay it. And I guess I probably did my third step, spiritual awakening, whatever there. Because I became willing to do anything and really realized that God is within us and is the answer to everything we need to know or anything we need help with. And I said to God in the days to come, um, you know, ask for direction. Uh, what will I do? God said I had to saturate myself in AA to the extent that I saturated myself with booze. And I went to 13 or 14 meetings a week for the first 18 months. I also got a job at the end of eight months when I got a little healthier. And I got a job managing a hotel. I didn't tell the truth there about why I was there, but I was there to get over the fear of working in hotels. And um, at the end of the first week, uh, hotel manager, I was managing the front desk, the fellow was managing the rest of the hotel, uh, his wife showed me some wedding pictures, and I, I recognized uh, AA member's wife in them. And I kept, I, I did, I'd forgotten who she was, but she looked familiar. And I kept on saying, "Who is this?" And she kept on saying, "That's my uh, stepmother." And I'd say, "Oh." And then I'd look at another wedding picture, another one. She'd be in the mall. I finally said, "Who? What, what's your stepmother's name?" She said, "Elsie Jens." I said, oh my God, you're Gordon's daughter. And I knew Cat was out of the bag. I went home and on Monday morning when I came in, Larry was waiting and he said, Angela, how did you know my, my stepfather? So I said, he was, um, I was a member of AA years ago and drank again and was just coming back and I had to get over this fear of working in hotels and that's why I'd taken the job. So if you want me to stay, those are the bases I'm here on, that I practice the principles of AA. And he said, you, it was so different. He said, the puzzle begins to fit. So I never ever did say to the staff that I was a member of AA, but the next morning there was a uh, phone number for AA on the switchboard. And there are people that were 12 stepped out of that hotel. I didn't do it. The staff would come to me and say, Mrs. O'Keefe, the lady in 423 is sick, shall we phone? And they never ever said anything to me about, are you an alcoholic or a member? It was just really bizarre. And I'd say, did she ask for help? And sometimes the answer would be yes, and I'd say, okay, you can phone. And other times they'd say, no, he didn't ask for help. And I'd say, can't phone then. He has to ask for help. The AA office was two blocks from the hotel, and... Uh, Often, people were, the phone call was put out, the 12-step people would be at the hotel and the person would be removed to a sanitarium or whatever in 45 minutes flat. 
It, it was just a phenomenal experience to be there, and I was there for 18 months, I think, and then moved up to Campbell River. Didn't want to go. Gave two months' notice at the hotel. Thought I was blowing a good thing. But I had this feeling that God wanted me to go to Campbell River, and I didn't know why. And uh, so I gave two months' notice, and the owner said, like, Angela Dowling, what's wrong? You want more money? And uh, uh, they, they were from Winnipeg, by the way, the owners. And um, they, they didn't have enough money to give me. And uh, so I moved to Campbell River without a job and with my children and uh, got a job there. I'm sorry we're, I'm running out of time, but I realize that maybe I spent too much time on stuff that wasn't important. And the important thing that I wanted to talk about was, was God. Because every job I have got, oh, they're not going to do that to us again, are they? Oh, well, hey. Every job I've got, um, I really have got as a result of finally saying to God, I will do anything you want. And so I was in Campbell for eight months. There was only two meetings a week at the time that I got there. There are now four or five meetings a day. Um, but I was, at the end of eight months, I realized that I was not, still not working, had not looked for a job. And I got real panicky, and I got this about one in the morning, and I was reading this book about how some of us are born acorns, and we just lie around on the ground all our life, and that's all that ever happens. And some of us are given a spiritual shock, and we turn into acorn trees. We become members of AA. And um, anyhow, I, I, I was in a panic when I realized that I was getting low on money and only eight months uh, and no work. And I got out of bed and, and God said, like, take it easy, take it easy. Who are you? Said, My name is Andrew and I'm an alcoholic. And why did you come? I came because I thought you wanted me to. Are you now willing to do anything? And I stood and I looked at Campbell River downtown district and I agreed to work wherever he wanted me to work. Individually looked at all the banks and hotels and everything and I got to this one store, Ray's Color Center, and my brain said, oh, they don't need anybody there. There's two AA members that own that and they would have told me if they needed somebody. And so I didn't agree to go there. And the next morning at 20 to 10, I got a call from Ray's Color Center. And uh, I, I did tell them about the, what happened the night before and that I would work for them if I could work on using the principles of AA. There was no uh, AA office. There was no AA club. And the judges sent people directly from the courts to Ray's Color Center. If I asked if somebody coming through the door if I could help them, I never knew whether they wanted to buy $20,000 worth of carpet or whether they wanted to whisper, the judge sent me. <laughs> and, and there are many people around that got 12 steps through race color. Um, fellow down Sacramento. Um, I was there for about 10 years, I guess, and they had sold and business had gone a little bankrupt, although nobody really knew it. And again, I went through this God thing. And uh, I had an eye operation, couldn't work for three months. And one night I was lying in bed and 
And I said, I know I should be looking for a job. The doctor said I could go back to work on May 1st. But I'm, I really would love to live on the ocean. And I don't, I no longer want a big palatial home. But if you could just find me a little shack, all painted and decorated it up. And, and I promise you, I'll look for a job. And the next morning, a man phoned and said he was captain of the motor vessel Yucha, which is a freighter that services the west coast of Vancouver Island. And they were looking for a cook. And I had never cooked, but my daughter's receptionist was the granddaughter of the other cook. There was two crews, two cooks. And you know I was on that boat four or five months before I realized my prayer had been answered. We were one week on and one week off. So I was a week on the ocean, you know. And I also had my prayer answered about getting the little shack. My room was about a foot and a half bigger than a coffin. <laughs> and they installed a tape deck for my AA tapes. Um, they, were, they drank profusely when I got aboard. Um, not long after, one of the partners quit drinking, the other cook quit drinking, the crew informed all the loggers there was no more drinking on the ship. And that I didn't know they'd gone on the rocks two or three times. And uh, the important thing was that I got to be of service for God in an area where I never, ever expected. I got to carry the message to people that lived on little tiny islands all by themselves. There was a young native couple that used to come by boat. I asked them two or three times, where, where do you live? And they'd say, oh, over there, over there. And I thought it was a little house where we docked. And I, one night I thought I could go visit them after I finished work if I knew which house they were in. And there was a reserve, about 200 houses across from where we docked. This place is Cayuca. It's called the name of the place. And, and uh, so they got a map out and showed me the map. And they've been coming by boat, like 45, 50 minutes by boat, to get to an AA member. And we have AA right here in town, and do we go to meetings? You know. So uh, anyhow, it was my privilege to, to carry the message to loners on the, on the west coast of Vancouver Island. And uh, I worked there for 10 years, and I was feeling, um, I was feeling tired. When I first started on there, there was only a crew of five, and business was good logging. But the logging industry is dying out in, in B.C., and uh, so it has become more tourists. So by the time that I'd been there seven or eight years, we were getting 100, 120 people aboard every day. And uh, one of the main things that I had to cook was clam chowder. <laughs> They said I made the best clam chowder on the West Coast. <laughs> I did make it with luck. Because I'm not a cook, I asked God, like, how do I do this? How do I do that? What do I put in this? What do I put in that? And I tell you, I ended up being a fabulous cook. But any time I tried to do it on my own, it was blah. In fact, I, I, I 
made muffins every day. And one time we were have, having a whole bunch of people, I'd made about six dozen muffins. But I did it on my own, and I forgot the sugar in all six dozen. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I was oh, God. Anyhow, I'm asking God, will I do? I'm, I'm so tired. And I said, I will not quit because I really believe that you gave me this job, so I won't quit, but I don't know what you're going to do. And so after two or three months, we came in to dock one, one night. There was a message on the machine that some young fellows wanted to buy this ship. And I said to the captain, are you guys selling? And he said, no. And I thought, my God, I mean, that's power, isn't it? And uh, so I said, well, Dave, you know, you're 54 years old. It might be an excellent time for you to sell, you know. And uh, so he went over the books with the, ca- the accountant, and they indeed decided to sell the ship. So I figured that I'm free. I'm off. So I casually mentioned this to his other partner one night, and he was a great big German who had quit drinking. He went along with that, but he wouldn't come to AA, so you know the results. And he just exploded and said, you're not going anywhere. You're part of the deal. (laughs) They were leaving. I wasn't. And uh, so I just said, uh, I have to be up at 5.30, so good night. I went to bed, and I said, okay, God, now what do I do? And God said, go to the doctor. Jeez, that never occurred to me. I mean, I, you know, I never go to doctors. And I hadn't been feeling well for a long time, but I, because I worked 15, 16 hours a day. And uh, I give my all. And I wear my medallion. And I don't say I'm a member of AA, but medallion is visible. And uh, I broke the chain on the way here. So anyhow, I got up the next morning and I went out and I thought, yeah, I'll I'll ask the doctor. And so I got up the next morning and I was out making coffee. And the captain came down the stairs and looked at me and he said, Angela? And I said, yes, Dave. And he said, I think we should see a doctor. I said, oh. I thought, my God, God's talking to him too. (laughs) So he uh, had the secretary make the arrangements, drove me uptown. I was honest with the doctor and said, I'm just feeling so tired all the time. And I just, you know, I told him about the sale and I thought I could get laid off and blah, blah, blah. And he said, how old are you? And I said, 64. And he said, well, unemployment insurance is not going to pat you on the head and say, poor old soul, she shouldn't be working. He said, you look young. And he said, I could probably get you a week. And a week seemed like a 10-minute coffee break. I was exhausted. So he said, well, let's do a test anyway. And he threw on the blood pressure things. He said, oh, my God, this is perfectly legitimate. This woman should not be working. And so I never even got back on the ship. I, they took me back to Campbell River, and they brought my clothes home a week later, and I was off the ship. And four days later, my blood pressure was fine. And um, I never, ever worked again. What I did get to do was do something that I'd wanted to do all my life. And that was be an actress. And I, you know, we all are fabulous actors at one time or another in AA. But as a child, I, that's what I always wanted to be, was an actress. And that's the wonderful thing about AA. All your dreams can come true. All your dreams can come true. God does have a plan. Ask and you shall receive. 
no doubt about it. And um, as usual, I was being a little secretive about that. I had kept that a secret for 60 years. I was going over to a quarterly in Vancouver, and I thought, while I'm there, I will ask if there's any acting schools. I, I wouldn't presume to join the Campbell River acting drama group, because they're really good. But I'd be willing to be a student. And so I went and found out from Milk, one of our members, where there was an acting school, and there's several, and I went and was interviewed, and they said, absolutely, go for it. And uh, I come back out in the sidewalk, and reality hit, and I thought, I can't do this. I've got a mortgage, and I don't want to sell my house, and blah, blah, blah. And the reason I'm telling you this is because I am constantly amazed at how fast God works and how he hears everything. I, I don't know how he does it, <laughs> but he does. And uh, that was a Wednesday morning, and I went home Friday night and went to an AA meeting Saturday morning. And when I home, came home at 11 o'clock on uh, Saturday morning, there was a message on the machine, would I replace the lead in Steel Magnolias? Uh, and there was some director, and and I, I, I just, I'm always astounded. I just, I mean, I know it works, but I'm astounded every time, you know, in every area. If you're working in the garden and trying to move a rock and you can't do it, ask God. I guarantee you, it just moves, just moves. It just works. I could talk for two or three hours on the gifts that I've been given that I do not deserve that I have as a result of believing in God and tr just trying to share with you that, just that, 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 that it works. And so anyhow, they said, would you at least return our call? And I returned the call, and they explained that the, the gal that was, had the part had had a phone call, and there was some illness in the family, and we were flying out the next morning, and they were opening in 10 days, and the, the, the theater was sold out. And uh, they were stuck. Nobody in the group thought that they wanted to take on learning the lines and doing it in 10 days. And they asked if I would come down and watch them rehearse that night. So I went down and watched, and the director turned to me and said, Do you think you could do that? I said, I have no idea. But if you want, I'll, I'll try. They told me later that they thought I'd have to take the lines on stage and read them. I asked them, how did you find out my name? Because I'm positive God doesn't phone direct. You know? <laughs> they said that no one in the club would take that on. But there was a woman who said, I do know of one lady, and her name is Angela O'Keefe. And she has never acted, but she has great courage. And maybe she would do this for us. What a tremendous compliment to AA that we have great courage and are willing to help out people. And uh, so opened it up, opened up in ten days, and they never made more money. I, I said, well, don't you always? And apparently not. I did not tell them why they made more money. Uh, the audience was mostly AA. <laughs> gone on from then and, and have done a few plays and I was in a movie this last 
summer for two and a half months, six days a week, 15, 16 hours a day, and carrying the message on, on the movie set. And uh, now I'm in the studying for the mouse trap, which is the oldest play continuously run on uh, in London, been running continually since 1952. And all I do is write you know, everything I know is, I'm sure everything you know is, is been handed on to us. So this last thing, I know I'm over, so I'll close, is um, something that I heard on a tape when I was on a ship. And uh, it was uh, the tape um, person was Jinx F. And she, at that time, uh, she had 25 years. And she said that every day for 25 years, she had done this certain thing. And I thought, well, if it works for her, it should help me. And so every day, I write the date, and then I write, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as I will. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties. The victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. And he does. So I thank you very much for being here, and I, I wish I could talk for hours more. And I know that everybody needs to get on the way and go home. And Clara's flying out. It's just been a fabulous uh, conference for me. What a privilege to be here and to listen to the speakers up here and the talks that I've had with the young people in the audience. So thank you and I love you.